Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, August 18th, 2020. Hello everyone, this is Shannon and I am very pleased to be back with you for another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. I want to apologize for leaving you a bit in the lurch last week. We had some pretty serious technical difficulties that made it impossible to distribute the podcast. Fortunately, things are back up and running and that means I'm back to talk to you about new books as well as to share an author interview. I was fortunate enough to be able to chat with Fiona Davis about her latest novel, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, which is incredible. And she was a lot of fun to talk to. I hope you enjoy the interview. However, before you can hear it, you have to hear the usual housekeeping information. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so now let's move on to the interview and you can hear us talk about books and libraries and writing and all kinds of fabulously nerdy things for those of us who love books. And again, this is Fiona Davis on her latest novel, The Lions of Fifth Avenue. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and I am so excited to be talking this morning with author Fiona Davis, whose latest novel, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, was released in the U.S. yesterday, so August 4th. Fiona, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. You are very welcome. Could we start out by um, you giving readers a little bit of an introduction to the Lions of Fifth Avenue? Of course. So I write books that are set in New York City landmarks, and this one is the New York Public Library. And it's in two timelines. So one is 1913, and that's from the point of view of Laura Lyons, who's the wife of the library superintendent. And she lives in an, an apartment deep inside the library with her husband and two children. And this is an apartment that actually existed. And she's surrounded by all this knowledge, but she feels stifled. She wants more out of life. And so she applies to Columbia Journalism School and gets in and her world is really blown wide open. And the other timeline is 1993. And that's from the point of view of Sadie, who's a curator at a rare book collection at the library called the Bird Collection. Again, that actually exists as well. And Sadie is trying to put on an exhibit of rare books when one of her books goes missing. And she has to, she, she's kind of drawn into a series of book thefts that happened 80 years ago. 
as well as a terrible tragedy that happened to the superintendent's family back then. And I, I like to say it's about the magic of the written word and the power of women's voices. So I have to say that I would really, really love to live in an apartment deep within a library. <laughs> yes, I think many of us would. Like that would just make me so happy. Especially such a huge library as like the New York Public Library. Yeah, and it was interesting to research the library and, and the actual superintendent. Mine is, my family is made up, but the real family, they lived there for 30 years. Um, it was wow. a father and a wife and three kids. The daughter was born in the library. And there's stories of the kids playing baseball in the reading room using books as bases until they got <gasps> <laughs> And you kind of used that story a little bit um, when you're kind of recounting some of the like hijinks that people got up to in the library, perhaps that they uh, shouldn't have been doing. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. I, I love to take kind of these details that are that are real and kind of layer them into a fictional story. So this was like in my mind a love letter to books and the libraries that house them. Do you have a strong connection to libraries as a reader and an author? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, when I was a kid, we moved around a lot. And the one constant was the library. Once a week, we'd get in the car and go to the library. And my brother would head to trains and I would head to horses, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And, and, and it just was the one thing that I knew I could count on as, as our living situation changed so much. And so I've always loved libraries and going in. And, and the New York Public Library on 42nd Street and Fifth Avenue is just a remarkable building. When it was built, it was the largest marble building in America. Um, you know, it took nine years and nine million dollars to build. It had a million books when it opened in 1911. Wow, it, wow. it just is, it has such an amazing history and is so vital to the city of New York. So what is the library like today? Like, is it, it's not a circulating library, is that right? Like you can't borrow books from it? Is it more of like a research library? Exactly, that's a really good question. So yeah, it is more, it's a research library. There are parts of it that are circulating, I think the children's section, um, but most of it is a research library where you go in, you um, have to kind of fill out a slip in the old days. Um, and, and request the book, and the, the slip would go down these pneumatic tubes to the stacks, which are seven layers of bookshelves that are underneath the Rose Reading Room, which is the beautiful reading room at the top that's in so many, so many um, photos and images of the library. And the pages would run around and find your book and then send it back on kind of a, a trolley um, that would bring it back up, up to the reading room on the top floor. And, and you can't take out the books. Um, they're there for research. And so, for example, the Bird Collection, which my character Sadie works in, is a collection of manuscripts and rare books and first editions of books by almost 400 authors um, that have been saved for... So you can really see like an early draft of a Walt Whitman poem and see what the thought process was behind the poetry. Um, and they just remind us that these authors who we revere are human. And you can't just go in and look at it. You have to prove that you're a researcher or a scholar and apply to get access. But they really are these safekeepers of these artifacts of the past. And, and the library is very valued for, for what it does in that way. That is amazing. 
as somebody who loves books and always has, like that's just such an amazing image to have that there's just this library that keeps track of all of those early pieces of literature. I love that. Exactly, especially because, you know, the value of these things changes over time. And so something that wasn't valuable 100 years ago, like women's diaries or records of slave transactions, are really valuable today because our way of thinking has evolved. And and libraries have, have kept these things safe so that scholars can look at them and reanalyze them and, and use them to inform what we know about the past. And it would be my assumption that kind of like new books don't end up in this particular library. Would that be correct? In the Berg? No. <laughs> I mean, in any, like, in any part of, like, this whole research library. Uh, no, you know, there's so many books. There's uh, there's millions and millions of volumes. So you can get all kinds of books at the New York Public Library at that main branch. Um, not just old rare books or, or old maps or that kind of thing. There are special rooms just for those. But no, you can you can get pretty much anything there. It's incredible. That is lovely. So I have been a reader of your work since The Dollhouse came out. And I loved it so much. But I'm really curious to know what kind of drew you to writing these like dual timeline novels that center around New York City and its landmarks. Yeah, that's a great question. I had been working as a journalist and I came across a story idea about the Barbizon Hotel for Women and, and the idea of, of how it's changed over time, that there are a dozen of the old time residents still living there and what's it like today now that it's a condo. And I just thought, well, that will be a good article, but the women are very private and at that time they wouldn't be interviewed. And I couldn't shake it and I just thought, well, maybe I'll write a book about that. And I love dual timeline books. And yes. if, I'd known, if I'd known though how hard it is to, to pull that off, as well as have a mystery going through both timelines that has to be paid off at the end, <laughs> along with big plot twists. I mean, those are the books I like to read, but they are really hard to write. And um, I, I guess, you know, ignorance is bliss. And I just started structuring this book and figuring it out just to see if I could do it. And something about that book really hit, hit you know, hit hard and, and, and people responded to it so beautifully. And then I was off on a whole different career. So it wasn't something that I expected to do. I never imagined I'd be someone who wrote a book and it didn't happen until I was in my late forties, which is probably great because I actually had something to say. And, and it's just been an amazing journey ever since. And so now you have written five books so far. Yes. And they all are a little bit different from each other in the sense that like the times are different. The women are obviously very different, but I love the kind of continuity of knowing that you're going to encounter women and learn their stories in the way that they relate to this really famous New York landmark. Like I love the masterpiece and the whole like Grand Central Station. I thought that was amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it, it's so much fun to, you know, I, I start with a lot of research and I really dive into the buildings and see what surprises me, like an apartment in a library or with Grand Central that there was an art school there. That yes. No one about, but it was a huge art school. And and I know if, if 
if it surprises me, it'll surprise the reader. And that's where I start. And then I start looking for characters to inhabit those settings. And there's always, you know, real life people who, who inspire me. For example, in the lines of Fifth Avenue, I learned about a terrible book theft that happened at Columbia University's Butler Library in the 1990s where $1.8 million of rare books and manuscripts went stolen over a period of three months. And they couldn't figure out how the thief was getting in and out. And oh. I that as the framework for my own book theft um, and was able to interview the librarian who was head of the, the collection at Butler Library at the time and talk about what it was like for her and what it was like when she went before the judge and asked for a harsher sentence and, and was granted it because she made such an impassioned plea. And so for me, it's finding, you know, literary heroes like her and then creating a character who has parts of that in her storyline. And, and, and so it's really inspired by what, what really happens. I think that is one of the most beautiful things about historical fiction. Like it's one thing just to create a book and decide that you're going to set it in a period of history, but to actually pay attention to things that really happened and kind of use those as a framework. Um, I think that's just such a valuable piece of what you do that makes your books really stand out to readers. Oh, thank you so much. I, and I think it, it really helps me because it illuminates the time period that I'm working in. Like in the 1913s, my character Laura gets caught up in something called the Heterodoxy Club. And that's a club that actually existed, um, was down in Greenwich Village. And it was uh, where me, women would meet every two weeks and really discuss and debate the issues of the day, like birth control or the right to vote or women's rights or even free love. You know, they were so far ahead of their time. And, and it was just so surprising to learn all these things were talked about back then. And these are issues that I, I consider more around the 60s or 70s. And, and so it's wonderful to show how the women of the 1910s were really strong and vibrant and ambitious and how things seem to go through cycles um, and, and to, to capture it when it was at the height of, of debate and, and advocacy for women's issues. It was really fun. So is there a time period that you really love that you haven't written about yet? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I'm trying to think what I've missed. I, you know, I've, I haven't done a lot in the 1930s. Um, and that's a tough decade because it's the depression and, yes. and so I haven't hit that one, but I think I've almost hit every other one. Um, so yeah, you know, who knows? I'd love to go even more further back in the past, like the early 1800s in New York would be fascinating to write about. Well, that would be so cool. <laughs> right? That would be very interesting. So can we talk a little bit about your writing process? Because I would imagine that a dual timeline is hard on a number of levels. And so I'm really interested in knowing how you create this. Like, do you, your books are usually told in kind of alternating chapters that move us back and forth through time. So do you write them in the order that we read them or do you write kind of one timeline and then go back and interweave the second one? I tend to write the older one first and then write the second one and then interweave them. But I start by really creating the characters, figuring out who they are, what they want, what I can do to 
to put in their way because you want characters to have obstacles that they overcome. And, um, and then what I do is once I figured out who these people are, I figure out the plots of each, of each string. And so I know chapter by chapter what needs to happen in order to, you know, drop a red herring or a clue in one chapter without screwing up the story in the other one. And then I, I layer them together. And there are days that I just, my head is bursting and I have to go and eat a lot of chocolate in order to recover. <laughs> but once I have that outline, I work off that. And so, yeah, so then I, I go through the old timeline first and then the modern one, weave them together and then start really editing. And that's where the real work is of, I do around 10 different drafts of the book until it's really ready to be seen. And then it's edited some more. Um, so it's a, it's a real, it's a long process, but it's a really fun one. How long does it take you to do all these drafts? You know, I've been pretty fast. I've been about a book a year, um, which, you know, it's about three months of research and then three months of a first draft. And then um, then just start revising. Um, and I'll have, I have a little more time now just because with all the publicity, it's, that just wouldn't be possible. And so it'll be about a year and a half, which is great because I, if I leave it longer than that, I'll forget what happened. So, oh dear. You know, so I need to stay on top of it, um, in order to keep all those plot lines and characters in my head. I actually have to write quickly in order to make sure I'm, I'm staying in the moment and keeping it flowing. That makes sense. That does. It seems like otherwise it might kind of fade for you and perhaps not have that same level of immediacy that we get as we read it. Right. And yet at the same time, you need to, after each draft, to have a, some time off and get away from it so that you look at it with new eyes. So I have a little more time to do that now, um, which I'm taking advantage of. That seems very reasonable. <laughs> so the Lions of Fifth Avenue has been very positively received in just the like 24 hours that <laughs> it has been out in the world. Um, I hear that it was chosen by Good Morning America, which is super amazing. Um, is this something that you ever would have imagined for yourself that your books would would hit the world in such a big way? No, and it's so amazing. And I, I just have to say, it's, you know, I do write the books, but it is such a team effort of the editors and the publicists and the agents. Like, there, I have such an amazing team behind me who support me so that I can get the best book that I can write out in the world with the best cover and the, you know, the best editing. Um, and so I'm, it, it really is a, a team effort in so many ways. And I'm also lucky in that the book community, especially within the historical fiction and women's fiction realm, is so welcoming. And it, it's just been a joy to find this community of people. And you know people who love books. They're, they're just oh, great. Yes. And, and so it's been wonderful to have their support. And, and, you know, we all support each other through thick and thin and good news and bad news. And so it, I'm just, I consider myself very lucky and I'm really grateful for this opportunity. So what kind of books do you read? Like, do you read kind of within the genres that you write or do you write outside of your own like comfort reading? I try to 
to mix it up because I find if I read too many dual timeline historical fiction novels, I'm, I'm just, you know, it, it's just too much. But I, there are some out now that are so good. There's one called The Daughters of Foxcote Manor. By oh, yeah. oh, isn't it good? I'm trying to tell everyone about that book. It's a, a crumbling manor house and women, uh, you know, mothers and daughters and generations and secrets. Um, yes. I adored that book. So that's one I love. And then, um, yeah, there, there's a couple books coming out that I'm, I've read and, and I'm very excited about. One is The Exiles by Christina Baker Klein. Um, oh, I have the advanced copy of that oh, here. You'll love that. It's yes, it looks right. so good. And, and there's one coming out called 50 Words for Rain by Asha Lemmy, L-E-M-M-I-E. And that comes out September 1st. And that's historical fiction, um, post-World War II Japan, from the point of view of a a girl who's half Japanese and half black Ooh. and that's a really unique story that's, that's being told. Um, so yeah, but I love thrillers. I love suspense. Um, there's, there's so much out there that is fun to read. And I, I try to read as widely as I can. Do you try to read books that are different from what you write kind of at the time that you're writing or like, how do you kind of keep yourself separate from the stuff that other people are writing so that like you aren't influenced unduly by kind of other things that might be similar. I find I don't have that danger because, you know, if I'm reading a book that is historical fiction and just brilliant, I'm just inspired by it, mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or if there's a book that I, I am having a trouble reading, I try and figure out why, what is it that's not working and how, you know, and, and so I learned from every book. It doesn't matter what genre it is. And I just love historical fiction. So I think I couldn't give that up in the time that I have to write a book, you know. And no, that might be difficult. <laughs> My current read is um, the new Ellen Marie Wiseman, which is set in um, 1918 at the height of the influenza epidemic. Yes. Yes. And it's the orphan collector. It is lovely and heartbreaking and just everything that I love in historical fiction. And I'm just always so impressed by people's ability to kind of bring the past to life in in books. I think, you know, we we go to school, we have the kind of dry like textbook, kind of whitewashed ideas that people want us to know. And I feel like there's so, so much, not just in American history, but in world history that we, we aren't taught. And I've learned so much just through reading fiction. Yeah. Oh, there's no question. And, you know, there's books. I just finished um, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. And yes. that's set in Shakespeare's time from the point of view of his family, again, during a plague outbreak. And, and it's just, I think there's something reassuring about historical fiction that people have suffered and been through difficult times in the past and they have overcome them and life has gone on. And I think especially now that that message is very important. I think there's something a little bit wrong with me because I really love books about plagues. <laughs> like, it's like my favorite thing. I'll say to my partner, like, oh, there's a book coming out and it's all about, you know, this terrible disease. And she's just kind of like, um, I don't <laughs> think you're supposed to be so excited about that. Oh, you will love Hamnet then. You will. It's such a, and it's so beautifully written. Yes. I, 
I'm really looking forward to that one. I've had it um, sitting on my TBR pile for a little while now, so I need to actually make space for it. So can you tell us anything about what is coming next for you? Sure, I'm, I'm working on a book that's set at the Frick Collection. And that's a building that's a little less known than some of the others I've written about. And it was a mansion for a Gilded Age family. Henry Clay Frick lived there with his wife and daughter. And after um, his wife died, it was turned over to the city and is now the Frick Collection, which is an art, an art museum. And it's a beautiful building and the family was very interesting. And so I'm doing that one from 1919 is one timeline and 1966 is the other. And it's, it's coming along. It's, it's, there's a lot to play with and it's such a great building. It's kind of wonderful to be able to honor it. That is a building that I am not familiar with. Oh, good. You know, people who have seen it, if I say Frick Collection, everybody jumps up and down. And so I'm excited to kind of show a, a building that uh, some people might not know. It's, yeah, because it seems like a lot of the books that or a lot of the buildings that you've hit on so far are kind of more um, iconic, like well-known landmarks. Right. So it'll be really interesting to sort of get to know not a new building exactly, but like a new to me building. Exactly. That's what I hope it will do. So are you doing a lot of like virtual um, events in the time of COVID-19 yeah. to kind of promote your work? The publisher has really, uh, they've, they've been amazing in putting together a wonderful virtual tour. Um, and it's at least about a dozen events. And it's been kind of incredible. Last night we did a big event with the New York Public Library over Zoom. And we had a couple hundred people watching from all over um, America, and it was just incredible. And um, and and so in a way, it's it's kind of interesting because you can meet so many readers that you might not if you're you know stopping at five or six bookstores where you'll there'll be 50 people. I do miss the signings where you actually have one-on-one -on -one with readers and can connect with them that way. Mm -hmm. But you know, they they will come back. And in the meantime, this is just a wonderful way. I've been really enjoying watching Zoom broadcasts of authors that I love. and Yes, there are a ton of them. them. When normally you wouldn't be able to, so that's been great. Yes, I am um, like the most introverted of introverted people. And so the idea, even though I love books and authors and people who love books, the idea of like hanging out at a book signing is sort of like horrifying to me. And so I've really enjoyed getting to, you know, hear authors speak that I most likely wouldn't you know, go out to a bookstore or a library to see. Yeah, it's kind of wonderful that readers and, and authors are still connecting. Um, and yes. not even, even more so when books are so important and a nice diversion. So if listeners would like to get a hold of you online, what is the best way for them to do that? Sure. My website is FionaDavis.net and I'm on Facebook as Fiona Davis author and Instagram and Twitter as Fiona J Davis. And yeah, please join me. There's a lot going on online and I'm really enjoying sharing my research and interacting with readers there. So, so please, please come on board. That is amazing. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of what I'm sure must be a very busy um, time for you as Lions of Fifth Avenue is, is making its way out into the world. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. This is great. And thank you for doing what you do. It's, it's, it's really, really wonderful for us authors. You are definitely appreciated as an author. We, um, there's just, there's so much to be gained from reading and it's something that I want like more people to, to benefit from. Exactly. Well, good luck to you. And I hope your new book continues to um, come along really well. Right. And thank you so much. This was so much fun. Great questions. I appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Now we're going to talk about books that are out this week. So there were a number of books that were out last week. Um, and if anyone would like recommendations for those, you can let me know and I'll be happy to shoot some your way. Um, but this week I have a really nice collection of books to talk about. Um, first of all, I have to say that this is like Stacy's favorite book day, perhaps of the whole year, because one of her favorite authors has a new book out and she has a new zombie apocalypse novel that's finally available in audio. So for Stacy, we are all very excited, but for Stacy, today is fantastic. So she's looking forward to, of course, The Jackal by J.R. Ward, and that is the first book in the Black Dagger Brotherhood prison camp series. She is also super excited about The Switch by Beth O'Leary, which is finally out in audio. I believe it was out in print in April of this year, but it's now available as an audiobook. As is Worlds Departed, Cascadia Falls Book One by Sarah Lyons Fleming. And this is a zombie novel that is set in the same universe as her Until the End of the World series but apparently we follow the apocalypse as seen by people on the West Coast. So those are the three books that Stacy is absolutely over the moon about. Um, Amber is very excited about The Patron Saint of Pregnant Girls by Ursula Heggie, and you heard her talk about this on our Most Anticipated Books of August episode. Um, I'm also looking forward to this one. And Kristen is very excited about a new author. This is The Vanished Queen by Elizabeth Campbell. This looks to be young adult fantasy and it looks pretty awesome. So those are some books that we talked about on previous episodes, um, some books that are out in audio when they were previously only out in print. So now we're gonna talk about books that I haven't mentioned before. And we're gonna start with quite a few historicals. So first up, is The Spirit of Aloha. And this is by Linda Alasit. It is a historical novel set in Hawaii in 1922. And it's about a young girl. She's 16. She's been raised by this adopted family, and yet she feels sort of adrift. And we kind of learn more about her life, more about her ancestors, and kind of what caused her to be put up for adoption. So this is The Spirit of Aloha. And it is by Linda Alasit. We also have The Stars of Heaven by Jessica Dahl. This is set in 1775 in Lisbon. 
And it is in the wake of one of the most terrible earthquakes the world has ever seen. Um, we follow a young woman who is searching for her loved ones. You know, she's not sure if they survived. And she's just kind of moving through the wasteland that was brought about by this hurricane and really trying to figure out like how she's going to put her life back together. So this is The Stars of Heaven, and it's by Jessica Dahl. Next up is Jackie and Maria by Gil Paul. And this is the story of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and Maria Collis, who apparently were both in love with the same man, that man being Aristotle Onassis. Um, I don't know a lot about these women, aside from just like really basic things like, you know, Jackie Kennedy was the first lady in the 1960s and was beloved by many people, but I don't know a lot about her relationship with Aristotle Onassis, and I certainly don't know much about Maria Callas. So this is a book that I am really excited for. I've also heard great things about this author. Um, Gil Paul has written a number of historical novels, so I definitely want to give this one a try. This is Jackie and Maria by Gil Paul. And if you enjoy World War II era fiction, then this one might work for you. This is The London Restoration by Rachel McMillan. It is a post-war romance about a couple who is trying to save their beloved city at the same time that they're trying to kind of rekindle their own relationship. So this is historical fiction with a little bit of romance. It is The London Restoration and it is by Rachel McMillan. Speaking of historical fiction with some romance, let's talk about historical romance for a second. Um, there's a book called Who's That Earl? It's the first book in a new series called Love and Let Spy by Susanna Craig. And I don't like, I think I've said this before, I don't like modern spy novels, like all the espionage and terrorist cells and all the things that we kind of associate with modern kind of espionage novels. But I do love the kind of spying that happened like when England and France were at war right after the French Revolution. So that era spying is very excellent to me, as is spying related to World War II. So I'm eager to check this out. There have been some very well done historical romances about spies. So I'm hoping that we can add this one to the collection. It is Who's That Earl? Love and Let Spy, book one by Susanna Craig. I also want to talk about a book called Tolland House by Maggie Hum. And this is set in the early part of the 20th century. So between 1900 and 1920, basically. And it's about a female artist who returns to Cornwall to unravel the suspicious circumstances surrounding her mother's death. So this is kind of a historical mystery. Um, kind of a look at life in Cornwall in the early part of the 20th century. And it is Tolland House. It's by Maggie Hum. This next book, I think, will appeal to quite a few people. This is The Queen of Tuesday, and it's by Darren Strauss. 
and it is a fictional account of the life of Lucille Ball. So I have never been a big Lucille Ball person. Um, I know a lot of people who really love I Love Lucy, um, and I've seen reruns of it, and it's fine, but I never really, like, I didn't grow up with it in the way that a lot of people did, so I don't necessarily see the charm, like, in the show. I do, however, recognize Lucille Ball as just just huge force in Hollywood um, for women in some of the early days of, of television. So I think it's very cool that someone is writing a book about her and bringing her life to the page. So this is The Queen of Tuesday, and it is by Darren Strauss. Next up is... The Company We Keep. This is by Canadian author Frances Itani. I read one of her books about 10 years ago and fell in love with it. Her writing is just fantastic. So if you've never read one of her books, I highly recommend it. The one that I read was called Deafening. But this one, The Company We Keep, is about six strangers who meet each week to share their joys and their sorrows um, in kind of like a support group of, of sorts. Um, this is kind of to remind them that people can start over at any point in life, even when it seems impossible. So this is The Company We Keep, and it is by Francis Atani. This next book really appeals to me because it's set in Detroit, and I grew up not very far at all from Detroit. So this is Black Bottom Saints by Alice Randall. And we look at Detroit during, again, the early part of the 20th century. We get to see some of the beginnings of like Motown and kind of the height of Detroit's fame. Um, we follow the city's growth through the eyes of a man who is known for owning some pretty elite nightclubs, for rubbing elbows with a bunch of influential Detroit people. Um, if you've been to Detroit, if Detroit has always fascinated you, then this might be a book that you want to check out. It is Black Bottom Saints, and it is by Alice Randall. And this next book really intrigued me, um, partly because of its comparison to Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Eng, but also just because of the blurb. So this is Ordinary Hazards by Anna Bruno. And basically, it's the story of the decline of a relationship. We all want to know what makes a relationship fail, whether that's so that we can keep the same thing from happening to our own relationships. Maybe it's so that we can gloat over other people's failings, which would not be kind, but would be human. Um, and so in this book, we see the decline of a relationship. And we hopefully will understand that the reasons that this happens are not necessarily as easy to understand as we would like to think. So if you loved Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Eng, this is said to be a really great book in that same vein. So it is Ordinary Hazards, and it is by Anna Bruno. So now we are going to talk about some mysteries. Um, this is a book called Three, and it was originally published in Israel and is finally here in the U.S. The author, um, excuse me, the author is 
D.A. Mishani. As I said, the book is called Three, and it is about three women who have all met the same man in the course of their daily lives. And he has not been completely honest with any of them about who he is, what kind of work he does, what his intentions are. But none of these women have been very honest with him either. And so apparently something happens to kind of bring all of this to a head and things get pretty dicey. So if you want to check it out, it is Three by D.A. Mishani. Then we have Little Deadly Secrets by Pamela Crane. This is a killer reads pick by Karen Slaughter. Um, and it's the story of three best friends, two unforgivable lies, and one dead body. If you want to know more, it's Little Deadly Secrets by Pamela Crane. This next book, Three Perfect Liars by Heidi Perks, is one that I was fortunate enough to read an early copy of, and it is spectacular. I loved her debut, Her One Mistake, and this one is just as good, if not better. Um, it centers around a tragedy that takes place in an office building, and I'm not going to tell you more than that, because to tell you much more would risk some really nasty spoilers and that would be very bad. So this is Three Perfect Liars by Heidi Perks. I highly, highly recommend it. And hanging out still with mysteries here for a minute, I want to talk about The Best of Friends by Lucinda Berry. This is her latest novel and it centers around a group of teenage friends and their families. These people are torn apart by a tragedy and it's apparently a tragedy that nobody fully understands. I don't know if someone died or someone was injured, but we don't know the reasons behind whatever this was. And apparently none of these people really know the full truth either. So this is The Best of Friends by Lucinda Berry. I have a couple more. These are all young adult now. Um, Six Angry Girls by Adrian Kistner. So if you are a fan of feminist fiction, then this one is definitely for you. It is about, yes, a group of six angry girls who decide that they are going to fight back against the injustices brought about by the patriarchy. And this starts out in kind of small ways and ends up shaping their lives in ways that they never really imagined. So it's six angry girls and it is by Adrian Kistner. Next up is Don't Ask Me Where I'm From by Jennifer DeLeon. This is the story of a first-generation Latinx teenager who has tried really hard to fit into her all-white school, but then something happens and she is forced to reckon with racism and who she owes her allegiance to and the reasons that she feels loyalty toward certain groups of people. So this is a pretty hard-hitting, intense young adult novel. It is Don't Ask Me Where I'm From, and it's by Jennifer DeLeon. Pintip Dunn. I love Pintip Dunn. Um, I've read a couple of her fantasy novels. This one is a YA contemporary. 
It is Dating Makes Perfect. It's about sisters, and the youngest of them has really been chomping at the bit to date. Her parents have not allowed it and not allowed it and not allowed it until all of a sudden they do allow it, except they say that she can only pretend to date someone. Now, why your parents would suggest this, I do not know, but I plan to read it to find out. It is Dating Makes Perfect, and it is by Pintip Dunn. And last up is a young adult fantasy novel called Ray Bearer. It is by Jordan Afieko, and it asks one question. What if you have promised to destroy the person that you were born to protect? Or vice versa? What if the person you were born to destroy is the person now that you promised to protect? I'm not quite sure how this works. Um, this is, you know, one of those blurbs that gives you very little information, but I'm super excited to find out because young adult fantasy has done such amazing things over the past few years. And there's so much of it that I love and I'm always on the lookout for more. So this is Ray Bearer and it is by Jordan Afieko. And that is all I have for you today. I hope that you have found something great to read. If not this week, then hopefully last week. And if not either of those weeks, then certainly August 25th will be the bookish day for you. If you would like to let us know your thoughts, you can do that by leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform you use to access the show. And not only does it allow us to see your feedback, but it also helps other book lovers to find us, which is a great thing. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with more bookish fabulousness. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more discussion of great books. Take care, everybody.